Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Good morning again. Daniel chapter 1 today. The last few weeks we've been doing a series in Genesis, so you might be wondering why are we doing Daniel today? We're pausing in our Genesis series, uh, particularly while Mike's away and he's piloting that series, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1. One of the reasons is because it's the start of an academic year. A lot of you are in new situations, new jobs, new places. And it's good to think about what does it look like to be a servant of Christ in our culture. So that's the idea today. What do we, how do we live for Christ in the culture that we're immersed in? How do we engage in the world around us as servants of Christ? So the title of this talk is Resolved, Christ-Centred Cultural Engagement. There's two, two kind of ideas that come out of this idea of resolve. One is that commitment of will that I'm going to resolve to do certain thing. There's another idea of resolve, which is I'm going to clearly sort of distinguish between two things. You might see, a, see lights in the distance on the highway at night and eventually you resolve them into two different objects. So there's that idea as well that comes into this idea of being resolved. What does Christ-centred cultural engagement look like for us? 1996 was uh, my first year as a teacher, 20 years ago now. Uh, it was my first science class that I'd ever taught and I wanted to wow the kids and get them excited about science. So I did something that wowed me as a child and that was that I got a piece of sodium okay, with tongs and I put it in a beaker of water, a large container of water. And I don't know if you know what happens when you drop sodium like that into, a, into water but it reacts violently and it fizzes and it splits and it turns into this angry ball of molten metal that just fizzes around the surface. And if your piece of sodium is large enough, it'll catch fire. Now, if you're a chemist and you know what happens in the reaction between sodium and water, you know that a certain gas is produced and that's hydrogen. Now, at the time, it was, we were teaching in Northern Australia, it was very hot, and so you have these ceiling fans going. And what happened was, the ceiling fans were pushing this gas down back toward the beaker. And so sure enough, my really big piece of sodium that I chose because I wanted to impress the kids caught fire. And sure enough, the, the, the hydrogen gas that was produced made a huge explosion. It sounded like a rifle shot going off all over the school. Kids were literally running everywhere. Thankfully, none of them got injured. And I guess even to this day, if you were to look up at the tiles of room D3 in Cooktown Secondary Department, you would see scorch marks on the ceiling. Some things cause a reaction when you put them together. Sodium and water is one of those things. Another is a faithful servant of Christ in the culture of the world. Something is going to happen either to that servant of Christ or to the situation they're in and the people around them. Something will always happen. And so we're going to learn from Daniel chapter 1. And his, Daniel and his three friends here are immersed in this pagan culture, immersed in a culture that's an enemy culture, immersed in a culture that doesn't recognise their gods. What principles and lessons can we learn in our own lives? So the big idea is this today. That comes out of the passage. Be clear, 
be consistent and be confident in your allegiance to Christ as king as you live in the surrounding culture. Be clear, be consistent and be confident in your allegiance to Christ as you engage in the culture around you. There are three points, clear, consistent and confident. First one, be clear. Know who's king. Know who the Lord is. Know who is on the throne. Have a look at verse 1 to 3 here. and We'll see this. The book of Daniel is about the rise and fall of kingdoms, great kingdoms of the world. The ultimate kingdom that reigns, and we see this in the book, uh, sorry, chapter 2, is that God's kingdom reigns and will destroy all the other earthly kingdoms. So it's a book of huge sweeping movements in history. It's also a book, it's a wonderful book because it zooms right out to these kingdoms and zooms right into individuals and what happens and how God uses them. And at the start of this book, we find ourselves in one of the lowest points of Jewish history, arguably the lowest. 605 BC, in the following 10 years or so, the Babylonians take over and destroy Jerusalem, God's city. Now have a look at Daniel 1, verses 1 to 3. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is the first exile. The second one, 586, was when the temple was utterly destroyed, along with the city of Jerusalem. What's going on here? What's going on? Imagine you're in Daniel's situation. What's going through his mind? What's going through your mind as you read this? How could an enemy pagan nation overtake this city of God and these people of God? Remember, if you, if you know the story, when the temple was built, God promised Solomon that he said, I will put my name in this city and in this temple forever. And here we see in this situation that God's city is being overrun. What's going on? Well, there's one clue that we need to look out for. We study our Bibles well. Have a look at verse 2. And the Lord gave, the Lord gave Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave King Jehoiakim into his hand. This is part of God's plan. We may not understand why. If you read Jeremiah chapter 25, you'll see that God had promised and warned this again and again. In fact, he even promised it before they came into the promised land. If you worship false gods and if you don't serve me, I'll hand you over to your enemies and you'll be exiled. So they were exiled for 70 years. This man-made empire has conquered God's people and his land. And poor Daniel, he's a teenager probably, maybe about 15 years old, and he's taken away along with some of the, the brightest uh, handsome young lads from Judah and they're taken over to Babylon to a new nation a language that's different religion that's different culture that's different and God's city is in ruins you know you can go to Berlin 
I'll just put a picture up here of, uh, uh, in, there's a per, it's called the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I'd love to go there and have a look. But there's a reconstruction of Nebuchadnezzar's city gate at Babylon. Babylon was a glorious city. It was wealthy. It was this city that was to be on display to the whole world. And one inscription on the gate there that Nebuchadnezzar wrote was this. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, laid the foundation of the gates. I had them built out of pure blue stone. I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. So you can imagine Daniel as a young man walking through these very gates and thinking how glorious is this city and how ruined are the people of God. What's going on? Who's in control? Where is God in all of this? Looks to me like the world is in control, like this enemy nation is in control. And you can see in verse 2 there, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar taking these temple items to the palace, the temple of his God. Seems like maybe Nebuchadnezzar's God is winning. I wonder if you ever feel like this. And you see all of the events that are going on around you in the world. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? Is he actually in control? And the big movements of countries in the world. And when you're living, maybe in your workplace, and no one seems to recognize Christ as king. Is he really in control? What we see in the book of Daniel is crystal clear that God is in charge. It's gloriously clear that God remains sovereign. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar himself, only a few chapters later, learns some big lessons and makes one of the most profound, powerful statements of God's sovereignty we see anywhere in the Bible. Just have a look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. It's up on the screen or just flick over a few pages in your Bibles. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and he begins to get real clarity on who the real king is. It's not him. So he says this, Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. And the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can restrain this most high God, and no one can challenge him as to whether he's right or wrong. And this is one of the big themes of Daniel. One of the big themes of the whole book is that God is on the throne, that his kingdom is the one that endures, that he is King of Kings. And that's the same clarity you and I need every day as we engage in the world. The most important thing we need to know as we engage in the world is who the king is. Who's on the throne? At all times, in all movements of history, God is on the throne. When it looks like human empires are in control, God is on the throne. When it feels like God's kingdom is insignificant and ineffectual, God is working his plan and he's on the throne. He's advancing his kingdom and later in chapter 7 you might want to flick over again and we see that it's not just God's kingdom but it's the kingdom of his son Jesus Christ it's the kingdom of his son have a look at Daniel 7 13 to 14 have a wonderful picture that Daniel has this vision of the Messiah who is to come 
And he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. If you ever wonder why Jesus called himself the son of man, this passage is probably the answer. A son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom of Christ. It's going to last forever. And it's going to destroy and overcome all the other kingdoms of the world that rise and fall. After the Babylonians came the Persians, then came the Greeks, then came the Romans, and it's all predicted in Daniel chapter 2. And it also says that God will set up a kingdom that will endure forever. That's what he's done in the coming of Jesus Christ into the earth. And so Jesus says what when he's about to leave? Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. Jesus is on the throne. I wonder every day if you remember that. If you make a practice of reminding yourself of that before you go to work, before you engage in the world, it's one of the most important things we need to do. You know that at every moment, all of us and every person on the earth is either advancing one of two kingdoms, either being enculturated into one of two kingdoms. In every decision we make, in all the words that we say, we're either advancing the kingdom of man or the kingdom of Christ. That's something to think about, isn't it? It's true. In everything we do, everything all people do, what does your life say about the kingdom you're advancing? Your priorities, your decisions, uh, your dreams, your words? What kingdom are you advancing? Christ's kingdom is the one that endures. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God day by day as the Lord Jesus tells us to? So we need this clarity at all times, this big picture view that Jesus is on the throne, that we're living for his kingdom. His kingdom is the one that endures and our purpose and priority and passion needs to be about his kingdom. You know, before our kids go to school, often uh, I'll send them out the door and I'll ask them a few questions, really basic questions, and I'll say, all right, who is the Lord of your life? Easy, obvious answer to every question, okay? Who is the Lord of St. Paul's Primary School? And they'll tell me Jesus is. And I'll say, who's the Lord of, insert principal, head teacher's name here. Who's the Lord of the head teacher? Well, Jesus is. Who's the Lord of Manchester? And I'll go on asking them these questions. I want them to know that Jesus is in control of all the aspects of their life. I want them to see that. We need to make sure we're entering our workplaces with that clarity in mind. We need to be careful of this secular and sacred divide that we can sometimes make. I used to make that as an early teacher and I used to not pray very much for my work. I used to not go in uh, with those eyes to see what's Christ doing and how is he establishing his kingdom today in this situation. So make a practice of that. Christ is Lord over every aspect of this world. Right, that's the first point. Be clear on who king, the king is. Second point. Be consistent. Keep your priorities. Engaging the culture is tricky and complicated. How much should we be seeking to transform our culture? How much should we be seeking to accommodate our culture? How much should we be separate from our culture? 
Have you ever asked these questions? What aspects of culture do we support? What aspects of the culture do we engage in and get involved in? What aspects of culture do we have nothing to do with? Here are some examples that maybe you've found yourself in situations like this. Who do you vote for when both candidates are candidates in an election that you strongly disagree with? When do you participate in a religious meal or festival, say for some neighbours who have a different belief about God? Do you send your kids trick-or-treating down the street? Are they just harmlessly collecting lollies with their sweets with their friends? Or uh, are you actually making some kind of statement by doing that? How do you navigate the relationship between some friends of yours who are in a relationship of the same sex? What do you support in their lives and what don't you? If you're a doctor, what kind of stand do you make regarding medication that you have real problems with? Prescribing. How do you take a stand in that regard? What do you do about this TV series your friends are watching that has a really gripping plot but some really dodgy scenes, sexual scenes or violent scenes? What do you do about that? How do you engage in that? What answer do you give them when they ask if you're watching it? You're invited to drinks with work colleagues on a Friday night and it looks like they're settling in for a long night. Do you have a drink? How many drinks do you have? When do you leave? These are difficult questions, aren't they? In Daniel chapter 1, we see Daniel immersed and his friends immersed in some tricky questions like this. Now, scholars, and I want to just take a moment to say, uh, to talk about some views of culture that Christians can have. Scholars agree that generally there's four approaches Christians can take to the culture around them. I'll just go through these. I wonder which one describes you the most. One of them is, we'll just describe them with words, contrast. One of them is this idea that we should separate from our culture, that Christians should be distinct. And so people who advocate this way of thinking will say, use verses like in 2 Corinthians 6, come out of them and be separate, touch no unclean thing, the Lord says. What fellowship does the light have with darkness? So you have this kind of perspective. Another one is conform. And people from this school of thought will say, no, no, Christians have to actually engage in culture and there's good things about culture we need to celebrate. And so people of this point of view will say, use verses like 2 Corinthians 9. I, to the Jews I become a Jew. I become all things to all people so that in some ways I might save some. So we need to really champion and celebrate culture as a good thing. Another one is transform, that when we view the culture we want to change it. We, we are God's agents of change in the culture, that we want to get involved in politics. We want to get involved in all kinds of aspects of society. Think about William Wilberforce and the slave trade. Let's change the culture. Let's make it look more like what God's kingdom should look like. And a fourth one, which is a little bit more nuanced, is coexist. That this idea that, you know what, we shouldn't get our hopes too high about transforming society because you know, people who never bow the knee to Christ won't live like Christians. So we need to get on and focus. The priority here is focus. And we need to do what the mission of the church is and not be, not, not be too distracted by changing this culture. Now, what stance do you take? Which one best describes you? What do we see in Daniel chapter 1? We actually see 
Maybe your conclusion is another C word, complex. It's just too tricky. And it is pretty tricky. And the reality is, you know, there's some truth to all of those. There's some truth to all of those. And there's dangers of being too strong in any one particular view. If we go too strongly in the separate view, then we become a little bit like the Amish community. Or if we accommodate the culture too much, then we become theologically liberal and all of a sudden our authority is the culture and not the word of God. Huge problem. But if you're a non-Christian here, maybe you've seen Christians act strangely in some of these areas. Maybe you've seen Christians withdraw from perfectly reasonable things. Maybe you've seen Christians with the opposite problem. Maybe you've seen Christians get so much like the culture around them that you've wondered, well, what's the point of being a Christian at all? Maybe you've got the impression that being a Christian means trying to take over government and to sort of implement all these Christian laws and make non-Christians act like Christians. Or maybe you see Christians altogether too complacent about the problems in the world. So actually, if you're a believer in Christ, the way we approach culture is critical. What do we learn from Daniel and his friends? Have a look at verses 3 to 7. And you'll see in here, actually, keep your eyes open as we read, for four ways that these men were immersed in the culture around them. Four ways they were subjected to this pagan Babylonian culture. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah and the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, what are these four ways they were subjected to Babylonian culture? One, you can see it in verse four, is that they were educated in Babylonian literature and language. They were immersed in Babylonian myths and beliefs and writings and religion. Second one, they fed from the king's table. They actually got a portion of food from the king's table, a portion of meat and wine, and you can see that in verse 5. This wasn't just a standard thing. This was a, this was a statement that they were dependent on the king, a statement that their family allegiance belonged to the king. They were fed directly from his table. Third one is that they were employed in serving the government. Have a look at verse 5. It says that they were to stand before the king. So the whole reason they were being trained is that they could come into the employment of the king of Babylon. And four, they had their names changed after Babylonian gods. And you can see that in verse seven. Daniel, which means God is my judge, becomes Belteshazzar, O wife of Bel, protect the king. Daniel's name becomes a prayer to a pagan goddess. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, becomes Abednego, servant of Nebo. That's a Babylonian god. Mishael, who is like God, becomes Meshach, who is like Aku, the moon god of Babylon. 
How would you feel about that? How would you respond to each of those four things? What would you do? How do they respond? We'll just work through these. One is that there's no comment about how they responded to the names. They just had to put up with them, I suppose. But there's no comment about that. Number two is that they received the education of Babylon. And you can see in verse 18 that it seems like at the end of the time set by the king, the chief official presented them. They were educated for three years. They obviously received that education. But there's one thing that they do resist. Oh, sorry, I missed one. They do take up service to the king of Babylon. So it's pretty clear here that they're not, uh, they're not simply saying that I refuse to serve the king of Babylon. They're not saying I refuse to honour the king of Babylon. And they're not saying I refuse to work for this enemy nation. Okay, They're actually receiving that and they're okay with that. How does that affect the way you view culture? Governments aren't intrinsically evil. God can work through governments. We should get rid of this idea that, we sh- that governments are evil and leaders are wrong and that they're doing wrong. We need to have a higher view of government than that. But verse 19, sorry, yet yeah, they stood before the king. And you know they held influential positions for years. In Daniel 2.49 it says that he, Nebuchadnezzar appointed these four men over the whole province, the whole province of Babylon. So they definitely had influential positions in the empire. But there is one thing they do resist, interestingly. What is it? What's the thing that they take a stand on? It's the food. They don't eat the meat and the wine. Now, if you're a non-alcoholic person or a vegan, you might be getting excited right now. You might think there's a good case for your point that we shouldn't eat meat or drink wine. I don't think that's what's going on here. Meat and wine were generally consumed by Jews. So what's going on? More likely, they did this in the specific situation to make a statement, to declare their allegiance, not to the king of Babylon, but to God, to say that their dependence was on him alone, to put themselves in a position where they were dependent on him. It was a way that they could maintain some kind of distinction from the people around them. What do we learn from Daniel and his friends here? We learn that There's no clear rules about engaging culture. It can be complex. But the primary lesson is this, is to hold to your convictions. To hold to your convictions as you engage in the culture. Know what you believe and stick to it. Know what your convictions are and stick to your guns. Engage in the culture and don't compromise. We see in Daniel chapter 1 verse 15 that God upheld their cause. They looked healthier and better nourished than all the others. So engage in the culture, yes, but maintain your distinct identity as a child of God. How are you going with that in your workplace? How are you going with that in your sport team or with your neighbours? Are you maintaining your distinct identity as a child of God while still engaging with the culture around you? That's the critical thing. Be consistent. What are some ways we can be consistent in our workplace, neighbourhood, sport team, etc.? One is to be consistent, I'll give you a few applications here, four four applications. One is to be consistent in your Christ-like character, to be consistent in your character. Daniel was clearly a man who had a good relationship with this chief of eunuchs that was over him. God gave him favour in his eyes, you can see that in verse 9. 
He had good relationships. Lesson, respect the people over you. Have good relationships. Be Christ-like, be loving, be humble and be content. Don't complain. Don't be cynical. Don't be arrogant. But be Christ-like in your character. Second one, be consistent in the way you speak. I wonder if you've ever been tempted, I've been tempted many times, to edit God out of my speech with non-Christians. So I might say to a Christian, I'm really thankful God answered my prayer in this and that. And then when I'm talking to a non-Christian, I'll say, I'm just really glad this happened. You ever do that? Don't do that. Don't do it. Talk about your life. Talk about your church. Talk about the things that you would talk about with a Christian. Don't edit God out of your conversation. We see in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel's standing before the king and giving a reason for why he got the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he says, there's a God in heaven who reveals, reveals mysteries. He says, I can't make the dream known, but God can make it known. He's openly talking about his God before the king. So be consistent in your speech. Another one is be consistent in your habits when people are watching. If you're in the habit of giving thanks before a meal, then give thanks before every meal, whether you're around non-Christians or Christians. If you like to read your Bible in the morning and you're on the bus, read your Bible on the bus. Don't put it away because it feels awkward. You know, it's when these awkward situations arise that God can use us the most. Be consistent in what you stand up for. In Daniel chapter 3, we see these men, uh, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, refusing to bow. And all the crowd is bowing before this massive statue of the king. They refuse to bow. On pain of death, they refuse to bow. They take their stand and they say in Daniel 3.18, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Made Nebuchadnezzar so furious, he threw them into the fiery furnace, heated up to its maximum. But God upheld their cause. You know, we often tend to shy away at the point of discomfort from maintaining our identity as children of God. But it's at the point of discomfort that God may use you the most. Let your light shine before men. Be consistent. An example of this is back in 1924, there was a runner, a Scottish runner, you may have heard of through the story Chariots of Fire, and his name was Eric Liddell. And Liddell was a Scottish gold medalist. He was a gold medalist in the Olympics in 1924 in the 400 metres, an excellent athlete. But because of his Christian convictions, he refused to run on a Sunday. Now, I'm not championing that approach, but this was his conviction, to refuse to run on a Sunday. He was consistent in his stand. And I, do I believe that he glorified Jesus through his consistent stand? Yes. Now, I wouldn't necessarily take that same approach. I have a slightly different view of Sabbath. But he was consistent in his stand, and I think that brought glory to God through his life. So how can you be consistent in your convictions before those who don't know the Lord? Third point is be confident. God will get his glory through you. Apparently, on average, British people have six different employers in their lifetime. We're used to moving on to the next thing. That's part of our culture, isn't it? Part of our life at the moment. One of the problems with this that it can breed is that we have itchy feet all the time, don't we? We're always wanting to move on to the next thing. 
the new model of mobile phone or whatever, new model of smartphone. One of the things is it's easy to look forward to that next situation where the Lord might use me more. Or when I get in this situation, then I think the Lord will really use me. And it's easy to not expect God to be working right here and right now. Do you ever think that way? Don't think that way. It's easy to assume maybe that you're too small and too insignificant to make a difference for the kingdom of God, but that's not true either. Have a look at verses 17 to 21. It says, These four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah so that they entered the king's service. Literally, they stood before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Seventy years he served the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia. Seventy years Daniel served them. He saw four different kings come and go. And he faithfully served. And God used him powerfully and mightily for his purposes. It was a life well used. Why? We don't particularly see Daniel doing anything heroic, just standing up. I guess it's heroic in the sense that he stood up for his convictions and maintained what he believed about the Lord. God used him powerfully. God can use you powerfully in the same way. A few applications from these verses. One, God has gifted you and equipped you uniquely in your situation. It might not feel like that. You might feel pretty rubbish in the situation that you're in. But God has uniquely wired you for the situation you're in. He doesn't make mistakes. He has Ephesians 2.10, good works prepared beforehand for you. So serve with your gifts. Look at verse 17. These men God gave knowledge and understanding. God gifted them. Second one, strive for excellence in what you do. Don't think that there's any part of your work which is too mundane or unnoticed that it doesn't matter. Don't cut corners in your work to say, I'll just get this done and can do this other thing that's more important. All of it matters. Everything you do, every little report that you do, every bit of cleaning that you do, every piece of clothing you hang up, for wash, for, to dry, is important. Do it with excellence. It honours the Lord. He's an excellent God. Do it to a high standard. Don't underestimate the value of work in glorifying God. If you're a student, you might be tempted to cut corners on your study. You might be tempted just to learn for the exams. Learn your material well, because that what you learn will have benefit later on, and you know what you're talking about in the workplace. Glorify God with your study. And clearly the king was impressed with them. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. He saw something different about them. Integrity, honesty, not flattery, not divided motives. They were immensely useful to the king. He found them none equal to them. It says in Proverbs 22:29, Do you see a man who's skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Third one, be confident in the power of the word to transform you. We're almost done here. Two more. 
Be confident in the power of the word to transform you. There's a clarity and a confidence that comes from being shaped by God's word. And you bring that into your workplace, on your, uh, into your lives, into the culture, and it has an effect. So one of the reasons we want to study the word is to be equipped to engage with our culture. We're hearing from God. We're being shaped by him. It says in Psalm, I'll put this verse up here from Psalm 119, 98 to 100. It says, your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. So when you're living a life of obedience to God's word and you're immersed in God's word, it will have an impact on the people around you. They will notice. So don't underestimate the power of God's word to shape you and equip you to serve in this culture and to glorify God. And finally, be confident in God's power to change people. You know, who would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this foreign king, this pagan king, would bow the knee to the Most High God? Who would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, two different kings of these great empires, would have written letters to all of the subjects in their empire saying, you need to revere the God of Daniel? That's what happens in Daniel 4 and Daniel 6.26 is that both of these kings write a letter because they're amazed at God's work and his wonders and they tell the whole empire to worship this living God. So we mustn't underestimate the power of God to change and to use us and we mustn't underestimate the power of prayer. Almost certainly we read later on in Daniel that he prayed three times a day and he did this consistently and I failed to mention this before in one of the most impressive displays of consistency in Daniel's life, even when the rule was that you couldn't pray to God, uh, you couldn't pray to any God except the king, the king of the nation, Daniel opened his blinds as he did before every day and he prayed consistently. But we mustn't underestimate the power of prayer. Daniel surely prayed for his kings. So I wonder, how often do you pray for the leaders of of our nation? How often do you pray for the empires of the world? How often do you pray uh, for the situations like the one going on in Aleppo at the moment, in Syria? How often do you pray for people like Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama? We should be. We should be. How often are you praying for Theresa May? Why? Because God can use our prayers powerfully to change people. Maybe if you're not praying much, what's the reason? Do you expect God, you're too small? Maybe you expect that you're too small for God to hear you. Or maybe you become a bit cynical and you don't expect God to act. What does God instruct us to do in his word? Have a look at 2 Timothy 2, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. He says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You see the that there? It's important. He's saying that you should be praying, we should be praying these things with the expectation that something is going to happen so that this is the result. So we can pray, we're told to pray in the word with an expectation that God will bring peace through it. Prayer does have an effect. So pray with expectation and serve with confidence. So let's recap. 
What are our three things? As we engage in culture, in our allegiance to Christ as Lord, what are the three things? Be clear, engage with clarity, knowing that Christ is Lord, he's on the throne. Be consistent in your profession and in your practice. And thirdly, be confident God's going to accomplish his purposes through us. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King of Kings, the Most High God. Throughout history, you've been accomplishing your plan. Even when it seems like we can't understand, it seems like you're not in control. Lord, you're doing exactly what you purpose to do. You do as you please with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. So Lord, we humble ourselves under you, recognising you're the eternal God. You're the same God who Daniel prayed to 2,500 years ago. You're that same God and you have the same kingdom that you're advancing. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you'd be glorified in the world, be glorified in our lives. Uh, May we engage this culture with clarity, knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are on the throne with consistency in our life and our godliness. And Lord, with confidence to know that you will accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.